Hi, I'm the Nabba Duncan. This podcast is about my girlfriends who work in the media. And this is the season finale episode. I know. Nanaba, why are you ending this? It was just getting good. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. I never thought about my colleagues actually paying attention to this podcast. Um, But sometimes you have to take a break. Uh, The reason for the podcast in the beginning was to give myself the interviewing experience that I always wanted. And now I'm actually getting it at work. I've been lucky enough to get a position where I am interviewing people Every week I'm interviewing about six different individuals. And so that goal that I wanted to fill is happening. However, I will be back because there's a difference between CBC Nanaba and the Nanaba that you hear on Media Girlfriends. So I will be back with Media Girlfriends. But for now, this is the season finale. Today's episode is with Rachel Giza. She's a writer and editor at large at Chatelaine, which is a Canadian women's magazine. Uh, She used to be the senior editor at The Walrus, which is a Canadian magazine about politics and culture. She guest hosts on a few CBC shows like Day Six and Q. And she is nearly finished writing a book about boyhood and uh, masculinity. I don't remember my first meeting with Rachel, but I got to know her one summer when I rented a cottage with a few other media girlfriends like Garvia Bailey and Tori Allen. Rachel came to visit, and I've come to know her as a thoughtful, very intelligent and sensitive person. And because I have always been fascinated by people who take on the risk of writing entire books, uh, I thought that I would talk to Rachel. Like, I think writing a book, the only way that I can think of it is like writing a really, really long essay, and I can't even imagine doing that. Anyway, during our conversation, you'll notice that cultural appropriation uh, comes up a lot, and that's because it was obviously in both of our minds. And because Rachel listened to the last podcast, she started out talking about her thoughts on what Anupa Mystery had to say about moving to New York for a new job, in part because she felt frustrated by the media landscape in Canada. I feel like I loved your conversation with Anupa so much. And really I felt, thanks. yeah, I thought it was so good. I mean, I know her a little bit. Like, I don't know her well. Like, we, when she worked at Q briefly, I was guest hosting and, you know, we've crossed paths and I was at the grid. She was a contributor. So, um, but I really thought when she was talking about, um, you know, the 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 window dressing of inclusion versus the getting to be the person who calls the yeah. shots. And I thought that, I feel like there is like, there, there is this level where so many people are stuck and it's like you're here, but there are no opportunities for you to climb to the executive producer position or the editor-in-chief position. And why do you think that is? I think it's still an old white boys club. I think that there's a lot of babe. I mean, you know, here, I mean, we're not being broadcast anywhere in the building, are we? Nope. I think here that there are... The mic um, is live, though. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
So this is where Rachel turned her mic off and then I turned my mic off because of privacy concerns. But uh, we'll pick it back up here. But I feel like I've written so many um, letters supporting people's visa applications to the U.S. in the last three years. Like I have written, I think, five letters for journalists in their like talented young journalists in their 20s and early 30s. Many of them women, many of them people of color who were like, why would I stay here when people are like actually headhunting me from the U.S.? Like people are are saying, you know, oh, you've got great audio experience. Come on over. Come on over. Because here's there's there's all these startups. There's all there. You know, there's Gimlet. There's Slate, which doing is doing Panoply is doing like all these places that they've actually run out of people at NPR. Like NPR (laughs) barely doesn't have enough people anymore. (laughs) And they're coming here. And it just feels like there's just this. I feel like, and I feel like I really, like when when Anupa said, like, there is this sense of, and, you know, I think she was, like, really fair in saying part of it is we just have a smaller market. Yeah. Fair enough. And that's the truth. And that's, that is the truth. Like, we just don't have as many opportunities. But I feel like there are so many people, like, if we were in the U.S., there are a number of people who are in their late 20s, early 30s, who would be like, go executive produce a show, because we want a show that gets young people in, or, you know, or people that would be scooped up by somebody who's a mentor. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of mentoring does not happen. Here, I don't know. I don't know a single woman mm-hmm. who has had an older woman mm-hmm. say to her, "You are really talented, and I want to see you." I mean, they—they, they, they, I'm sure that exists. I just have not heard it in my circle. I have not heard anybody say, "Are you doing it?" I have. I do it. Like I do like coffees a lot with mm-hmm. people. So anytime somebody emails me and says, "I'm a journalism student," or "I am an intern," will you have a coffee with me and talk to me about mm-hmm. what it is that you do, or how do I get in? I do it. Okay, so why is this happening? What is the reason? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, come on, you must have some idea. I think that I think that I think that maybe maybe people don't care about the future. Like I think there might be a lot of people who are just really selfish, who are just kind of like I've put my time in and I'm going to bide my time until I'm done. Like I'm 55, I've got 10 years to retirement. I'm not going to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. I think that there are people who feel insulted by young people who feel like threatened or insulted and maybe some of that is fair maybe they feel like they aren't value like they they, they're sort of seen as being square out of touch or something so that might be part of it um but and I also think there's kind of an arrogance that there's a kind of like uh, you know somebody who thinks I don't like whatever whatever they're talking about I don't get it I don't understand it it doesn't have meaning to me um and so they like I respond with they respond with well I don't you know that that doesn't matter like whatever you know whether it's like you know identity politics stuff whether it's technology whether it's somebody talking about like you know like something just like online dating or whatever it is I think it's just sort of like it doesn't Hmm. it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. to them I think that there's a real kind of if it doesn't matter to me, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't, and I think that's what happens. As opposed, I to feel th- so fucking tired by that. <laughs> yeah, that sentiment. Yeah. I, 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 it's not like I get this all the time, but what I'm tired of is hearing that it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that the opposite exists. I know that there are mm-hmm. people out there mm-hmm. who are, you know, over 55 and are very interested Mm -hmm. in young people's Mm -hmm. opinions and what they're into and all that. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I don't know when when you say that mm-hmm. I just feel sad. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's but that's the other thing too is I feel like so I was at the 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 Walrus Talks the the have you been to a Walrus Talk? I haven't. Okay, yeah. I haven't. Okay, so I was at the Walrus Talks event and you know it's like a pretty controversial time because of all the um, the appropriation prize and all of that and John Kay's left and whatever. Yeah. So I went to it and you know their whole mission for the Walrus Talks was fifty. Order of Canada winners, so mostly older kind of establishment people, and then 50 youth leaders. And so they had 100 people talking in like across the country. And so this was the final leg. And so there was somebody from um, Black Lives Matter, Toronto speaking. Um, there was, um, you know, a dancer and a choreographer speaking. There was a young jazz pianist speaking. Um, it was, there was a young photographer speaking. Cool. Um, so there were, you know, people talking about um, police brutality, talking about representation, um, talking about the environment from you know different ages different backgrounds the audience was like packed and there were like a number of like kind of like beaches and annex like <laughs> folks like that were like you know 56 eager to be there like right like I want to know about this I want to hear about your life I want to hear what your take on the world is so I actually do feel that there's a huge appetite mm-hmm. but I think that people don't get that there's that appetite like I think that people are misreading their audience. Mm-hmm. I think that there's all kinds of people who want to know about the world and want to know about things. Like, um, I just read this study. That, so Rogers did this survey, and I'm writing a piece. And so everyone at Rogers who's a contributor has been asked to write about this, respond to this survey. Um, and it was kind of like, where is Canada at in 2017? And so they were asking about um, they were asked, so these are like these are Rogers readers. I mean, these are not these are people who read Maclean's, right? Okay. Maclean's and Chatelaine. So they're not really like they're reading mainstream media. Okay. And one of the questions was, um, do you want to hear more about indigenous issues? Like, do you think the media does a good job reporting on indigenous? And and like the majority of people were like, I want to hear more. I don't think the media does a good job, and I'd like to know more. Interesting. So I feel like then. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Let, like, let's give it. Let's, to them. let's give it to them. Like yeah. this is what this is what people are saying. Like this yeah. is what audiences they care. They want to know. Mm-hmm. So I think that part of it is, I think the tastemakers here have like here other places have very limited tastes. Like I think that mm. they, and I think that they don't trust people who have different tastes than them. I think if someone says, I know that this would be a sell. Like, I know if we wrote about this, people would care about this. I think that they don't trust. Like, I think if they don't care about it, they don't don't trust it. That is unfortunate. Yes. Um, You had mentioned the appropriation prize bit. And I want to bring that up just for a moment. I know this is a (laughs) – this conversation is like it's just forever and I know some people want it to uh-huh. die but um, you're one of my few friends who does long posts mm. and, and you do it every so often about you know something that means something to you and when this came up you did a post about it and um, just for reference if you're listening and you don't know what this is about uh, Hal Niedzwiecki wrote an opinion piece in Right Magazine saying that he didn't believe in cultural appropriation and that set off a bit of a a bit of a, it set off a media storm in Canada on Twitter and beyond. And uh, Rachel, you spent some time writing a Facebook post about it. And that meant something to me for a number of reasons. One of which is that I didn't actually see a lot of white people talking about it online or elsewhere. And I didn't discuss it with many of 
my white colleagues, but it was a big conversation among people of color. And so I want to know why you wrote mm. something. So, because it was offensive and yeah. it was hurtful and it was... I just I, want to stop you quickly yeah. just to make a point that, sorry, that I'm aware that people who don't say stuff doesn't mean that they... It doesn't mean that they yeah. think positively or negatively mm-hmm. about that thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Absolutely. I, and I also I felt so I had it had happened um on it like late in a Thursday night, early in a Friday morning, and I was sort of spending Friday processing it and I was having a lot of convers so I'm a freelancer. My my title is my title is editor at large at Shad Lane, but so I have a title there, but I don't actually work there. So I freelance for them, and I'm a regular contributor. Um, but I, you know, so I work. So they're published by Rogers. So I have a, you know, I work at Rogers, mm-hmm. um, or I get a paycheck from Rogers. Um, I have, you know, worked at the Walrus. I've contributed to the National Post. Um, I've contributed to the CBC. So I've, I've, I've been a part of a lot of the places where people had, had said this, and so I had spent. Friday and, um, you know, in conversation with people that worked at various places. And I don't want to, I mean, those conversations were confidential, so I don't want to talk about it. So there was a lot of conversation that I was having with people at those places about how to respond and what to do and what to do within those organizations and what was the best way forward. Did you feel like you had to do something? Um, I felt, yeah, yeah, I did. And I also felt like I, I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. So I reached out to people at Shad Lane to express, um, how upset I was about, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, um, the fact that Steve Mayesh, who, uh, you know, is at Rogers had been one of the people who had participated in it. And he has since apologized. And from what I understand, there have been, um, there's been there have been things again. This is stuff I'm not sure I'm I'm able to speak That's to. Fine. But my understanding is there there is stuff happening to right. create change within the organization, and that um, I didn't speak to him directly, but I know that there that he was in many conversations, as were I think a lot of people who had participated in the ha 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 let's set up a an appropriation prize. And I think at all of those organizations there were conversations happening, um, and what I hope for more than anything is that that actually leads to real real serious change. Um, so I was having conversations. I was, um, you know, called on by a couple of people who knew my association to say something as well, who said, you know, like you need to speak up. And I listened to that. Um, you know, this is also, you know, personal for me, my son is Anishinaabe. So, um, so this is not something that is, um, removed from me or my family. I thought about that. Yeah. So I think, I think a lot about, um, you know, as the parent of a child who is indigenous, when these issues come up in the media, um, I don't ever want to, presume to speak for the community in any kind of way Mm -hmm. but I feel like there is also my desire as a parent to um, try to help create a world and a a media world that reflects the 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 realities of my of my son and and his people Um, it was so disturbing to me and you know when you when you say the point that, that just because people didn't speak out 
what I heard was from like a lot of um, like a lot of white people who actually didn't know how to proceed, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. equally felt troubled, who um, had within their or- media organizations had been working to 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 be more inclusive, took issues around um, racism and representation very very seriously, but weren't sure. How, how to, to how to how to do it or how right. to speak out and even whether it was appropriate for them to speak out so i think and you know for me i just normally my facebook is private and so i put this post up where i where i i wanted to talk a bit about my experience having worked in media here for 20 years mm-hmm. and how often i think moments like this reflect a kind of a, a racial bias and also a lack of imagination. And the two things are sort of, I think, you know, partnered in my mind, where a lot of the people who hold a lot of the power um, live in bubbles and they they don't they don't see the world outside of their own circle of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that is that is just bad for media. <laughs> like that is just bad for media well, in it's, general. It related to what we were just talking yeah. about. Like Yeah. And I think at this moment, I think at this moment where, you know, there has been um, so many people um, protesting and raising questions around this whole notion of, you know, Canada 150 and, you know, um, and how just how deeply offensive the celebrations are mm-hmm. um, to, you know, and I think that you can even now begin to hear the language changing where people are talking about 150 oh years of yes. confederation. As yes. Point, you know? yes. And you know what? I've been having, even on my show, I've been having trouble thinking and, and, and thinking about how to even address the existence of Canada 150 and I I still don't have the answers mm-hmm. but I I totally understand that yeah. so are you going yeah yeah ahead? no it's true and I think that we're all kind of like so here's this thing so yeah. how do we how do we mark 150 years of confederation in a way like what oper- and I think also what opportunities does it provide to sort of talk about you know who gets to tell stories in Canada um, who writes the history books in Canada mm-hmm. um, you know how educated are people on 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 the history of Canada? Um, you know, my this is just an aside, but my son goes to a school that's incredibly mixed with a very progressive principal, and they did this big presentation. They did these these these, these projects at school, and you know. I think that there are so many teachers at his school who really, really get it mm-hmm. and really understand it. That's awesome. Um, which is amazing. That is like the dream. Yes. And yet <laughs> they oh. they had this project. And yet, so I mean, you know, his school is probably like I would say 85 to 90 percent kids of color and indigenous kids at okay. his school. So it is a enormous and and there is a teaching staff that is actually, I think, more representative than a lot of other 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 schools. Um, but you know, I they, need to get the name of the yeah, okay. school later. <laughs> Um, but there was a map on the wall, and it was sort of, you know, Canada, history of Canada. And it was a map. It was beautiful. And the, the timeline started oh, at 1700. Right. And, you know, there are, like, my son is, there, there are other, like, my son is not the only Indigenous kid at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, you know, so there just was that thing of being reminded that, like, right, this is, this, even, even in progressive places, this is, we There's all a can long get way to go. Up. But I took you off. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. So, yeah, so I think that at this particular moment, when after the TRC, after the Truth and Reconciliation um, um, report, after the Joseph Boyden um, discussion and, and situation, that this felt, and, and at a time when people were talking about Canada 150, that this appropriation issue felt so incredibly 
awful and painful. And yet also, there were people like ready. I mean, what I think has been interesting to, to see in the aftermath is just how many conversations are actually happening. At, yeah. I mean, where they lead, I don't know. But, but I the, know there are conversations happening at CBC. Yeah. I'm part of them. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like what happened were there were all kinds of people um, within those organizations who said, I'm not going to be quiet anymore. I'm not going to... I feel like I've had to compromise myself. I, you know, and I heard from a lot of a lot of people, particularly younger people in the media, younger women of color, who were saying, "I don't think I belong where I'm at," and that was pretty heartbreaking. What do these, you mean? Like they that they didn't they they felt like they they shouldn't be at their media organizations that their media organizations didn't respect them and didn't respect right. their contributions. Okay. And so I felt like here like. And I was saying to you before, like, I've just spent a lot of time writing visa applications, like <laughs> writing supporting letters for people who are trying to go to the U.S. Right, right, right. And I feel Does like... Does it break your heart a little bit? It breaks bit? my heart because I feel like there are these hugely talented people here um, who also just, they just want to be journalists. Like, they, like... Yeah, they're like, just trying to do the thing. They're, they're just, just trying just, to do the they're thing. Just trying to do, they're just trying to do the thing. And so this this thing happens late late night on, on Twitter, which I think to the people involved at that moment, I think for many of them, they didn't think there'd be any... They, they didn't think that what they did had any weight or meaning that I think for them, it just all felt sort of theoretical, which is a problem, which is a problem. And I think that they didn't, which is someone like, you know, someone like Jesse Wente has articulated this so beautifully, is that that kind of language and those kinds of conversations have real material impact. And so I heard it from people who were saying to me, um, this makes me feel alienated from my workplace, or people saying to me, you need to speak up because mm. you know we need we need to hear from white people saying mm. um, that this is wrong. Did you say something for Chatelaine as well? I or, didn't. I okay. mean, I spoke to people there, mm-hmm. but I just put this post up. I spoke to people at Chatelaine and said, "Listen, I'm putting this post up. I'm mm-hmm. I'm 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 upset about what happened, mm-hmm. and I'm putting this post up, and I'm letting you know, and I'm making it public." Did you feel supported? Yeah, completely. Completely. Because again, I think there are a lot like my feeling was that amongst the people that were amongst the many, you know, I think this is probably true of the CBC, amongst many people who were the reporters, the editors, the, you know, I think lots of people were deeply offended by this and wounded by this. Mm -hmm. And I think they also felt embarrassed by it. I think that they felt, you know, I think it was especially at a (sighs) honest, I'm I'm going to be honest, just like when you work at an organization that talks about being inclusive and diversive in its um, mandate, you want that to be true 100 percent. Yeah. You know, mistakes happen. For sure. I understand. Mm-hmm. And I know. Yeah. And of course, not every single person has that mandate in his or her mm-hmm. heart necessarily mm-hmm. at all times. But it's just. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. And I think that I think it also, you know, I feel. I think th- even talking about this right now, I, I feel scared. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Yeah, yeah, because it's it, for sure. Because you don't, you know. Because I think, and I think that's that's the that's why people don't speak up, right? Yeah. And I think that's why people feel afraid to raise these issues. Mm-hmm. I think that's why people feel like if they, you know, and I know all kinds of, you know, my own experience from sort of sitting in editorial meetings and seeing what ideas get get dismissed, seeing what writers become go-to writers for stories, seeing the way in which, um, you know, whether it's a, a, a writer of color or a, a, a LGBTQ writer, where they get sort of ghettoized into, well, let's call this person in to write about this issue, you mm-hmm. know, as opposed to saying, um, 
we should be having everyone talk about mm-hmm. economics and sports and arts and, you know, like, I, and I think also talking about who's getting promoted to big decision making. So having sort of witnessed this, I think what's different than maybe witnessing it before is I do feel like there was a critical mass of people who said, this is not okay. And also I felt, you know, and I think there, I think there was an understanding. And again, I don't, you know, I think it was, you know, when, it was interesting when um, Steve May sort of, you know, went back on Twitter and said, you know, he made his apology on Twitter. And one of the things that he noted, and it's like, yeah, exactly, was he noted how much harder it is for the editors working at the various publications who had been trying to be more inclusive. Um, then suddenly you had a bunch of people saying, well, I'm not going to write for these publications anymore. Don't call me and ask me to be on your panel. Mm-hmm. And so you suddenly, you also had not just the damage to an individual repu- reputation, but to everyone associated with that reputation. So people there who um, felt like they were really working towards being more inclusive and, um, and being more representative, suddenly were dealing with people saying to them, like, don't, don't call me anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. Not if you, if this is you. If this is you, if this is you, then. Like you're really showing yourself. Yeah. How am I supposed to feel? Yeah. So here's a a, a question. Um, So Hannah Sung, Mm -hmm. who's another media girlfriend, she, Mm -hmm. um, put together at her work, she put together a, a video talking about what cultural appropriation is. Mm. And um, the gist was, re, um, along with explaining it um, with a couple of other people, she kind of, she talked about how it's it's tricky. You know, this whole thing can be very tricky. No one's saying you can't be imaginative. That's not what's happening mm. here. It's about respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... I have trouble with that part when people are like, I think I just saw something recently about, I believe, an academic saying that um, poutine is appropriative. (laughs) Like, how do you answer these things? Did you have any conversations with anyone where they were literally, where they were really saying, can I even say anything then? Mm-hmm. Like, did anybody say to you, did you have a conversation where someone was really wondering, well, what the fuck? Am I not yeah. allowed to do anything now? Did, it, did that come up in any no, of your conversations? I mean, I'm trying to think. So okay. I think what I, what I hear from, like, when I've worked at magazines or when I've done stuff, like, you know, at the CBC or, or something, and I hear from, say, um, like other white media people, mm-hmm. I think that there is always the question of, um, you know, Either they don't care at all, or they they don't care at all about representation or inclusion or whatever. Um, or when they do, um, wanting to make sure that they're careful and that their efforts aren't then insensitive or yeah, that there's course. not a backfire of, right, right, right. of in it. You know, they want to do it right. Yeah, they want to do it right. Um, I think I think it's really hard for people just to listen and learn. I think that's a really you know. And so I think that what gets missed often is it's not like there are, um, like, you're going out and discovering things. I mean, ideas, people, talent are there. <laughs> and so it's not like it's waiting to be discovered or, you know, it's – so part of it is, you know – I remember I had this boss who would, you know, always be surprised when he came across something he didn't know. And, and to, you know, like, did you know? And I was like, yeah, like, you know, did you know that there, there's an opinion out there like this? Did you know that there are, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. And, um, 
I think part of the job of journalists is knowing who who the experts are, is being aware of um, you know what conversations are happening, is 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 understanding that there's no one monolithic voice in the indigenous community or mm-hmm. in the African Canadian community or in the Chinese Canadian, you know, to understand that there are you know um, all kinds of internal debates and and differences and ideas and different experiences, and I mean, especially with something like Twitter, which you know. You know, Twitter gives and it takes away. Sure does. You know, I mean, sure does. Twitter is a complicated thing. <laughs> but the one thing that's brilliant about Twitter is you can just follow a whole bunch of people if you want to know what people are talking about and what people are saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? My husband does that. My yeah. husband follows a lot of super right wing, mm-hmm. angry type folks mm-hmm. on Twitter and elsewhere. He's been reading their blogs for mm-hmm. years and it has, I guess, he, um, he, I mean, this is part of his personality, but he doesn't get as emotional as mm. I do. And it's, it, quite frankly, and I think he would admit to this too, it's easier for him. He mm-hmm. doesn't have the perspective that I do. Mm-hmm. He hasn't lived the same way that I have mm-hmm. as a white man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think also, you know, I, I mean, I started in, you know, I'm a lesbian. I started in journalism through working at Extra, which is a, which was then a, like a, a paper. It was actually yeah. print, um, <laughs> uh, you know, <clears throat> back in the 90s. Um, kind of, you know, it was still like the height of um, AIDS activism. Mm-hmm. A lot of there were, you know, there wasn't same-sex marriage at that point. There wasn't same-sex adoption at that point. So I think I also started in media, in an activist media, at an activist media organization, Mm -hmm. and at a media organization that was founded because people didn't hear their stories being told. And, you know, which isn't to say that that whole media organization didn't have its own issues around inclusion and representation, and, and it did. But I think my experience becoming a journalist was... Um, an advocacy kind of journalism role and Mm -hmm. recognizing that there was a story being told about people like me in the mainstream media, Mm -hmm. which was very different than the stories we were telling in our paper. And so I think that 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 was a really good training ground. Um, and I think a better training ground than perhaps had I, you know, started as an intern in main in sort of more mainstream organizations where, um, like it was almost like a, like I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't do media criticism, and I think that it was kind of a tr- like almost like a like a, a lived experience of media criticism. Of mm-hmm. oh, I was at that event, and you were at that event, and your story reads like this, and my story reads like this. So we were at the same event, but we saw different things. We spoke to different people, um, and so. I mean, I don't know. I can't. We sort of, sort of got off topic, but I think <laughs> this whole thing started with yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but we I started think... with the, the with like the the Facebook post, yes. yeah, and and why you wrote it. And I actually, can you just give a summary as to what you what you were trying to say in it? Yeah. So I wrote it. I mean, what I wanted to talk about was why for I guess for people who. I think there was lots of people who just, they understood why it was heartbreaking immediately. They understood why it was, you know, offensive and hurtful and um, uh, dismissive and disrespectful. Like there were, you know, there were people who just immediately got it. And I wanted to write it for people who maybe, who didn't 
immediately understand why that was. Um, I think I wanted to write actually to white people, really, yeah. um, and say, if you if you don't understand what this is, and even with the free speech conversation, because I feel like that's always such a like a red herring. It's always the whole free speech thing, which is a whole other conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> but to explain just, you know, what I had seen at these organizations and to talk about the, you know, my observations, which are just mine. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I think I'm not trying to present myself as an expert in any kind of way. But to say, you know, in my experience, what I saw time and time again was not this overt racism of hearing editors say, we don't want that writer, we don't want that that producer, we don't want that guest, but more just not even looking beyond their own world. And, you know, in the high levels of media in Canada, it is still largely white, straight, and male. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so people were kind of just doing stories about what was in front of them. And my experience was being at, you know, a number of meetings where someone would pitch an idea and the person who was making the decisions about whether that would fly or not would say, doesn't interest me or I don't get it or it's not my world. And so that wouldn't. And so to me, it's kind of like it's that kind of thinking. It's the absence of of multiple perspectives that could lead to then a bunch of media leaders in, in Canada to kind of blithely make a joke about cultural appropriation on Twitter, that it didn't necessarily people like sort of rubbing their hands together and saying like, let's, you know, let's, let's be overtly discriminatory. It's not willful nastiness. Yeah, but it's, it's just this kind of ignorance. It's this kind of neglectfulness. It's this kind of, you know, I think this, it's, you know, if you've, if you've never spoken to people different than you, if they're not in your social circle, if if they're not the people who are sitting around the table, you're not gonna you're not gonna get it, right? And so I wanted to talk about how I saw it operating, and and to talk sort of sort of so it's kind of to describe the context in which mm-hmm. I think that conversation came out of, that that people could just make jokes like that and not think, I mean, Sachi Cole said it so beautifully um, in BuzzFeed and so, so powerfully when she said, do you think we, 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 we couldn't see you, I you know? That. And I thought again, I mean, here, you know, there's someone like Sachi who is like, you know, beyond brilliant and talented and, um, you know, and just feeling her pain in that piece of feeling belittled and disregarded and, um, and, and to, uh, and to sort of to say like this is this isn't this isn't just an abstract conversation about free speech or appropriation, and also I feel like and again Jesse Wenty made this point quite you know and, and Robert Jago has made this point and so many others have made this point. Who's Robert Jago? Robert Jago is um, uh, an indigenous journalist. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know how he self identifies. Um, so I'm just going to say indigenous with mm-hmm. apologies for kind of. Making and Jesse Wenty is also an indigenous. Yeah, yeah. Journalist. He's he's Ojibwe. Um, and so uh, Robert uh, Jago has written for various publications, um, including APTN, um, and he uh, was very involved in um, uh, writing about uh, the Joseph Boyden whether Joseph Boyden, um, what his uh, his actual heritage was. Um, so he writes a lot about these issues. I think I may have read that. Yeah, one. yeah. He's great. He's, he's, you should follow him on Twitter. He's, he's, he's excellent. And he has since written for The Walrus about cultural appropriation, wrote a beautiful piece that came out a few days after uh, John Kay had um, resigned. I think John Kay commissioned it. And then the piece came out after John Kay resigned about cultural appropriation. And Wait. What? Yes. Yes. <laughs> John Kay commissioned a piece about cultural appropriation. Yes. 
Yes. And then it came out after. So I think, I'm not sure. I mean, again, I don't want to speak for anybody. This, this is just stuff that I, like the report, what, what people have stated on Twitter. This is what Robert has stated on Twitter. Okay. I don't know Robert. This is just from following him on Twitter. So he wrote this beautiful piece in The Walrus, which people should read about cultural appropriation. And um, I believe he's now going to be a regular regular contributor um, at, at The Walrus writing about Indigenous issues, which is, which is awesome. He's great. Um, and so, you know, people have, I'm trying to think what I was, mentioning about the cultural appropriation uh. <laughs> this is the problem we get talking I feel like we just like it's like tangent land <laughs> I'm hoping you can fix it in editing yes make I will sound, fix it in make, post make, yeah, fix it in post we'll just fix it in post um, let's see uh, and just make me sound smart uh, you <laughs> Just make me sound smart. I love that you think that there's a possibility that you could not sound yeah. smart. Don't we all have imposter syndrome? Oh now? my god! Don't we all have imposter syndrome? Are we Rachel, all? I can't but believe you all, said but that. But are we all living with imposter? I mean, we all. Yeah, are. yeah, we do, oh, yeah. we do. But you know, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Okay, I want to move on. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because you are writing a book. Yeah. Um, what is the book about? Yes. So I'm writing a book, and the, the working title right now is Boys, What It Means to Become a Man in the 21st Century. And it's a book about boyhood and masculinity. And it's a, it's a nonfiction book. Um, it's a little bit memoir, because I'm raising a son who's now just turned 14. And so it's about... How much is memoir? Um, you know, it's interesting, because you and I have had this conversation. Like, no, yes. I know, I know, I know, you know, know where that's this where is I'm leading. Going. I know where this is going. <laughs> I can see. Okay, let me let you, you finish. You okay, finish sure. talking about what it's so about. it's about, you know, my, it's about my, my, my wife and I and our experience of, of raising a son. And, um, and it's also, I mean, the, the, the book really grew out of a piece that I wrote for the walrus when I was working at the walrus about five or six years ago. Um, about a progressive sex ed program for boys, which is based out of Calgary. And it's a program that's, um, it's called Wise Guys. It's taught in grade nine. It's a voluntary program, but it talks to boys about um, sexual health in a way that's holistic. So the, the course runs the entire year. The boys talk about, they learn skills about um, communication skills, negotiation skills. They learn about healthy relationships. Um, they, you know, one kid, and it's a great, this is this line that I love that I quoted this kid in the piece. He's like, this is a course where we learn how not to be jerks. Oh. So basically, it's a program that talks to boys about power dynamics, about sexism, about homophobia. Um, and so, and really, the sex education part is like three weeks. Like the, the actual mechanics of like reproduction right. and, you know, this is how you put a condom on is really minor. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is, you know, what are your own boundaries? How do you respect other people's boundaries? What do you want? So it really mm -hmm. is giving boys skills to have healthy relationships. Yeah. What a great program. Yeah, it's so a great this program. Is something so that, that's that was happening. kind of the thing. I wrote this piece, and then from that, that's where the book came out of. So the book is looking at um, sort of our ideas about masculinity and talking to a lot of people. Like, so looking at, so whether it's um, sex, schooling, uh, sports, popular culture, friendship, um, looking at the ways that boys learn about masculinity and what it means to be what it means to be male. So both overt and um, in sort of implicit messages and kind of looking at the question of how much of those, how much of identity is innate, how much of it is culture. Mm -hmm. um, how can we change the culture? Because a lot of boys, I think, 
I think a lot of boys do find a lot of the messages around masculinity, not all. I mean, some messages around masculinity are kind of neutral or positive, but a lot of them are really negative and toxic. And so I interviewed a lot of people who are working with boys, they're educators, they're sociologists, they're social workers, they're coaches, they're community organizers who are, who are working with boys in ways that help them become whole, emotionally healthy um, men. Wow. And, and and whatever that means for them, that not every path is going to be the same. And to kind of think about the way in which we've, I mean, it's still such a huge work in, pro- in, 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 in progress. And it's so interesting because I know you're a parent of both a boy and a girl. Mm-hmm. So I think you have a, I mean, you see it both ways. Where I think that we are, even though girls still experience so much discrimination, um, I think that we're more comfortable to say to girls, you can be anything you want. You can be aggressive and you can be sporty and you can be soft. And if you want to be a stay-at-home mom, great. If you want to run a company, great. But I don't think that we're entirely there yet when it comes to boys. I I know I'm not. I I mean, I'm perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. I know that for example, I have some clothes that are too small for my daughter. Am I keeping them for my son, I don't think I really am. Mm. Some of them I, I am mm-hmm. because I don't care if he mm-hmm. wears purple pants or mm-hmm. a pink shirt or whatever. But am I going to put him in a dress? Mm-hmm. Am yeah. I? Right? Yeah. Like if, if I was to be equal about mm-hmm. this, I would put him in a dress. Yeah. Like logically yeah. speaking. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not. And exactly. so what is that about? Like what is yeah. Uh, I Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so hard. It is hard. It is hard. And we're all, you know, we're all subject to these messages. And I think that, um, and I, you know, I, and again, I don't, I'm not trying to be prescriptive in the book because, you know, like I, like I, I'm very conscious of my own times that I have screwed up as a parent or I've made assumptions, you know, cause I've got, you know, my son is, my son ticks off many of the stereotypes of typical boy behavior. He's super okay. athletic. Um, he's got a lot of swagger. He, um, you know, he likes male kind of clothes. Like he's not been a kid who's sort of like, you know, I know lots of people who have, you know, um, boys who are more gender non-conforming, right. um, who played with dolls. That was just, you know, we put dolls in front of our son. You know, he had like we like a friend of ours at his second birthday gave him like this baby doll mm-hmm. in like a crib. And, you know, he didn't he just sort of played with it once and then kind of like, we left it in his room. It just, you know, we would, you know, there were lots of things that he <laughs> Did just you find didn't... yourself sort of like, hey, play with, with the, the doll. doll. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But then, you know, he would also he has a lot of stuffed animals, right? He had a lot of stuffed animals. So maybe those were the kinds of things he liked more or yeah. you know he had like a cooking like you know those um those little um vegetables and yeah. that, that stick together with the velcro <laughs> yeah. um so we would do a lot of cooking with him and stuff so you know and he's he's a super emotional he doesn't like to talk about his emotions but he's a sensitive person and um but, you know, I'm aware of being very conscious of, um, you know, putting like books in front of him um, that have female protagonists or, yeah. you know, making sure that we um, but, you know, a lot of pop culture is geared towards boys. Right. A lot of it is written for boys. It's about boys. Boys are at the center of it. Um so I'm aware of the times where I have just like, I've not bought my son a dress to wear, you know, I've yeah. not, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm also conscious of, you know, being this like lesbian feminist mother mm-hmm. of a boy who often, you know, fails at my feminism. He what? <laughs> I, fails fail, I fail at my feminism. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, the book is just in lots of ways to talk about how, like, not so much to say, oh, we're so bad and like wag the finger at anybody, but just to say like, 
if we've made this assumption, why did we make it? Like, what, like, what are the, like, are we making assumptions? What are they? Mm -hmm. Why? Like, you know, um, can we help boys? Just, can we give boys a bit more room? Can we give them a bit more room to totally. be, you know, to be who they are? And, you know, and is also, you know, so that's what the book is about. So it's memoir and it's reporting and it's all of that. Um, is this your, this is your first book? My first book. Amazing. Yeah. How do you go from, like, how do you go from, I just, I just wrote an article mm -hmm. and now I'm going to write this whole mm, book on it. <laughs> I mean, was that your decision? Did somebody say, hey, this is really good. You should make this a book. Or yeah. did you have a book in mind? All, or, mm -hmm. or did you have the idea of writing a yeah. book in mind all this time? Or? I think I always wanted to write a book. I okay. think that, um, but I think I just didn't have the confidence to do it, honestly. And I think I just didn't have the belief that I, I could sustain it or that anyone would read it or that I, you know, I, I don't think that it took me a long time to have a lot of confidence in in my field and in my mm. in my voice mm -hmm. um and I think that like I'm always astounded when um you know there are people who wrote, write their first book when they're 23 or 24 oh, and same. I just feel like <laughs> you know I was such a disaster back then like I you know what I mean is that disaster as a writer or a disaster as a person uh, everything like I just you know I just didn't have the confidence in my voice I mean I don't know like I could barely look after myself let alone write a book book and I just I also just don't think to be honest I don't think I could have handled the um the exposure like I don't think mm -hmm. that I've it's only been in the last I would say five or six years that I, I mean, this, sitting here and having this conversation with you, like I am a ball of anxiety. <laughs> really? Totally. Rachel. Because I feel like this is like, I'm talking it like. You are, you know what? It's true because you are, I, I mean, I, I understand mm -hmm. because normally when you're in front of a mic, you are hosting day six, you're yeah. hosting. I'm telling somebody else's story. I'm drawing somebody else. You're telling someone else's yeah. story. And, and now you're, you're talking, you're, you're talking own, to so, you. Well, you know what? And you're good because you're very, like, you're very good at drawing people out. Oh, thank so, you. And I trust you because you're my friend. Um, but it's very, it's <laughs> like, you know, the guy, it's very anxiety producing yeah. to, to sit here and talk about myself and to put forward my opinions. Because, and so that's how you felt about the book. But at yes. some point you made the leap. Yeah. At some point, the desire to say something became greater than the fear of saying something, right? right? Like at some yeah. point, that's what it, that's yeah. what it was. And, um, so I think where that, are you at now? So I'm book? almost done. So I'm just writing the final. So the first draft is almost done. It comes out in April next year. Um, and yay, yay so I know I'm very you. excited. I'm excited just to have it done. And also you've been working on this for how long? two or th three years, I want to say, three or four, maybe even longer. Like when I first started, like it took a long time for me to put together the proposal. I mean, if you want to understand my ambivalence, I was actually, <laughs> just to understand just this how, is an explanation. Just Here how we go. Deeply, deeply messed up I am. Um, so I was actually approached by an agent, my lovely agent, um, Samantha Haywood, who's just this like wonderful person. And she, we knew each other through, I was working at that time, I was working as an editor at The Walrus. And there were writers that I'd worked with who were represented by her. And so we had people in common and I was just about to leave the walrus to go and work at the grid, the late lamented mm -hmm. grid. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Sam called me up and said, I want to, I think you have a book in you. I don't know. I don't really know, but I think you have a book in you and let's meet. And like, do you have a book? Like, do you, so I actually had someone like when people say like, I'm waiting for a message from the universe. <laughs> like I actually had like the universe sent me this like lovely person who said like, I, I really want to encourage you to do this thing. And I said, well, 
well, I'm, you know, I'm working on this story. I was just finishing up this story about this sex ed program for boys. And I said, I kind of think like I'm really interested in this subject and it's become really personal for me because I've got this son and um, I, I've always been interested in gender issues. And there's also something kind of amusing to me about being a woman writing about masculinity because it just sort of was at the, it was at kind of like the beginnings of the, like the mansplaining thing. And so I like the idea of like... Womansplaining? Womansplaining. Like, like I was going to write about... And also I felt like... <laughs> I felt like also like I sort of had this weird position because, you know, um, my intimate partner is a woman. Yeah. And so I like my whole um, way of looking at like the gender wars, which was some of the conversations that have been happening about, you know, like the, the man woman problem, like the, these questions about like, what is it? What is it? And, and I'm not saying that my marriage is by any means perfect or without its challenges, but the gender thing didn't like, you know, that was not the thing on the table. Like that right. was not a, um, that was not where, where I felt like a lot of my straight female friends were also, um, struggling with work-life balance and shared domestic labor and, you know, and negotiating that stuff within their marriage and then also de- dealing with child rearing. That wasn't, you know, happening with that you. wasn't happening. I mean, there were other things. I mean, we did have our issues around balance and who does what, but it never, there was never in my mind, okay, this is because, right. because of my gender. Like right. she and I are, I'm doing more of the laundry because I'm a woman. It was, or, or she's doing more of the pickup after school because she's a woman, mm-hmm. because that just wasn't in the equation. Right. So I think going into this, I felt like I really was being kind of anthropological about, about maleness. It was like, I, you you're know, like, I, 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 don't I don't know. know. I don't know. So let's what go. What are these things <laughs> are that these you call things? men? <laughs> It's so funny. I saw Wonder Woman last night, and it was, you did. Yeah. And there's a scene when Wonder Woman, um, when she meets uh, the the guy, the 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 Steve Trevor, and she's like, "Are you know?" She's like, "So you're a man," like, and she's never seen a man before. And so I sort of sound like I'm like I've been living on the on the island of Amazons, and I've never like, seen a man. You got, got your pen, and you're like, "So, so you have a penis." So exactly. What, what is that? Tell me about that. So, <laughs> so I think. Also, to be immersed, you know, like I was, um, you know, my wife is, my wife identifies as as butch and mm-hmm. she, you know, she grew up like a little jock. She played sports. Um, so that realm of, she was like a tomboy. So, so that, there's some identification there. For Did sure. That... Like I would say that what, what's interesting to me too is I also know, um, you know, f- you know, friends with people I know being part of the queer community, a lot of masculinity that's not male masculinity. I know, you know, there's, I know a lot of women who identify um, with maleness and identify as as masculine women. Um, I know lots of folks who are gender non-binary. I know people who are trans. So also, you know, coming at this question of what it means to be male, mm-hmm. um, sort of bringing that experience and mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, knowledge of that. So, um, so anyway, you know, I had this, I was, I was really personally interested this, you know, the, this, this, my, my wonderful great, brilliant agent approaches me. And so it's like, it's the thing that you look for to someone to believe in you. And it took me a year to put together a proposal because I think I just felt like I, I was, I think I felt like I was going to. So with an agent, does she, does she like, is she, is, are they just, does this happen all the time that they're okay with somebody taking a year for a proposal? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, how is she not knocking your door? So is this thing happening? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think that she wasn't always pleased with Okay. Like I think she was a bit. I mean, she's lovely, and I think there, she was often impatient. Um, but she was really supportive, and yeah. I think also she was generous and kind enough to. I mean, I think she also deals with a lot of neurotic writers. <laughs> so you know, like I think I wasn't the only crazy person. That's not that's that's not a good use. I think I was no. not the only. Um, 
anxious, self-doubting person that she dealt with. Right. And so she was very patient and generous. And so, but even still, I just was really, it was really hard for me to, um, to sort of mm-hmm. step into that place and say, but I'm did. Gonna write a book. I did. So three years later, yeah, you're so, almost done. Yeah. So there's a lot of, so that's been really, um, and I think, I think I'm going to, I think, you know, that we were talking earlier about like sort of the memoir aspect. I think there was also that part of it too, about, you know, uh, it's not that's maybe a third of the book is sort of bringing in my own experience and our own experience and that was also fraught it was also um you know deciding what was okay to talk about with our son um and he's really open mm-hmm. um but so you must have to have conversations with both him yeah, and my wife and yeah. your wife like yeah. is this can i put this in here yeah and or can i put a version of this thing yeah. here without details or something like that yeah and they're much more comfortable with that than i am i would say like they're more comfortable with being out there in the world oh, I than see. i am and i think that um, cuz like you said a lot of my work as a journalist is about other asking other people yeah. it's telling other people's stories yeah. and it's about asking other people questions um and i think that there are people who are journalists who are very good at like personal essay writing um and that's that's their gift and their talent and it's never been mine it's never been something that i've loved doing when i have done it though i feel like i have had mostly a positive response when mm-hmm. i have written about something that's personal um and i don't do it that often i feel like and i think this is why people do it is people say that made me feel better or it made me feel less alone or i you know i appreciated so you feel um, encouraged by it yeah i feel encouraged by it and i also think that um you know and i think that i mean i'm car- like in the book i don't name i don't put my wife's name in it i don't put my son's name in it so okay. anyway so i mean as just a layer just of a, like as a bit of a remove they're not by, they're not mentioned there i talk about them but i don't give i don't give their names mm-hmm. um, my son doesn't have the same last name as me okay. um, so there's a bit of me feeling like there are and there are certain things that are just these these are not going to be you know these are not going to, and also you know my son was adopted and so i'm also conscious of um, wanting to be protective of his um, birth family and so there's there's details around his adoption that I'm just you know I think might be really really interesting to talk about but I'm not going to talk right. about them because that's not my story to tell right you know yeah. so I think there's a lot only... of things to consider yeah and I think but I think that that's okay yeah. right like I think it's okay to be careful mm-hmm. and um and then there's lots of stuff which I feel like I I can share and I can tell and you know um but I'm you know and you know my and my I feel like I I, I have a wonderful editor and he's been very good at saying to me, um, you know, is it okay with your, like, I feel like he also is very conscious Mm -hmm. and I feel really lucky because I feel like this is a trap. I think that a lot of particularly women get put in particularly, I feel like women like maybe a decade younger than me where, um, there was that sort of is sort of fading a little bit now, but that period where there was like a lot of personal essay writing by young women, yeah. And I feel like it became a bit of an exploitative kind of thing where it was kind of like, come and tell us this like really um, personal story about yourself and we'll pay you $25 for exposing yourself in this way. Yeah. And then we're never going to actually turn you into or like we're not going to let you become a reporter or we're or not going to support gonna, you or support or, you yeah. or, you know, so you let, let, put your story out there. We'll take advantage of it. And then and so I think that. I think that there might, I might have had an editor who would be like, ah, uh, come on, give me all the goods mm-hmm. on your family. Mm-hmm. And he's actually been very, a, a really good gut check for me to say, you know, is this okay? Or how about, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, did your family, did you run this past your family? And that's been, I feel like 
that's made me feel and I also feel the same way with my agent like I feel like I've I've had got a good team I got a good team and I think that 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 makes a big difference well since we're talking about it can you share something that is in your memoir right now Mm -hmm. a tiny thing yeah let me think um there's there's an intro in the book Mm -hmm. Um, that, that I think I can share. So this, this happened a few years ago. This is probably when my son was maybe around maybe 10 ish and he plays hockey and we were away at a hockey tournament and my son's, like my son's experience playing hockey is a very fraught one for me. I don't really like hockey. Um, it's a very straight world where people have largely been kind to us, but I'm always, I feel like I'm always got my, like my antenna waiting for something homophobic to be said, waiting for something racist to be said against my son. So I feel like I'm entering a world where I, and perhaps this is my own bias and unfairness but I feel like I am just like waiting for like something bad something bad right like I feel like and I feel super protective of my son I feel super protective of my wife like I'm really you know I feel like I'm always like a bit on on um on the ready and I mean it's funny because they're just like they're like just fine and like laid back (laughs) and I just feel like um you know I'm just like like ready to pounce on anybody who says anything And like, you know, like I'm just ready to call, I know, like I'm call out. Conversation. Like I'm just like ready to call out. Like I'm just like, you know, so mad, you know, so angry. And, um, you know, like, you know, like my son once played against a team that were called the, like they were, their name was the Ojibwe's. And, okay. you know, and it was mm. like one of those, like, oh my God, like, what do we do? Like, do we like leave? Do we, you know, and like, you know, and so just trying. And, what did you do? Well, we talked about it afterwards. Like we sort of showed, we showed up at the game and then I look and I realize the team is called the whatever town they're from, the something, mm-hmm. something Ojibwe. And, um, and so it's like, are uh, they Ojibwe? No, no, not at all. Not okay. at all. So my son kind of like, like, so we're sort of like, and he just goes off. And so we, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I'm really upset. And, you know, and, um, and then after the game, my son was like, that's so interesting because, you know, like I, maybe I should have been playing on that team, you know, because <laughs> he didn't like, I don't, he was too young. I mean, he was really little at that point. And so we had a good conversation afterwards about team mascots and stuff. And, you know, um, but just in that moment of like not knowing what to do and also not knowing what to do that would be best for my son yeah. in that moment, yeah. like, like is like sort of thinking like this is offensive, but he's kind of oblivious to it and so what do I want him to know about the world at this point exactly you know and and I'm sure that you would have lots of wisdom on this (laughs) about how do you talk to your kid about racism and discrimination and Mm -hmm. people that might judge them and at what age like like how much you want your kid just to be a kid and be free mm-hmm. and to feel like they get to they get to be everywhere mm-hmm. before you kind of have to let the truth drop on them. We've talked a lot. We have talked a lot. This is going to be an editing nightmare. <laughs> or it's going to be super fun and I'll just like lay out the whole thing. I don't know. I think it's because I've been like, <laughs> as much as I was anxious, I feel like I've been kind of lobbying, like sort of secretly lobbying to be a media girlfriend. Like, I've been, so, been on the list the, like, for I like know. a long time. I know, but I'm so excited. Like I was so excited to come <laughs> on and do this. So I was like, I'm never going to leave. I'm just going like, to like, like, I'm just going to stay here. I'm never going to leave here. I'll come back. I'll be your intern. I'll bring coffee to your <laughs> Um, okay, so you've been in the business for over oh, like twenty years. Okay, for twenty years. Um, 
What is the last thing that you really learned about being in this business? Hmm. I mean, this sounds kind of obvious, but I think it was the point that I was making earlier is, um, or related to the point, is that um, there are... I think it has to do with the fraud thing, and and I feel like this 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 did come to me late, but um, there are a lot of people in this business with a big name who don't know what they're talking about at all. Like I think that mm. I think that, I, I, and not to be that's not sort of snarky, but more that I think that I assumed that. Um, for a long time that, you know, if somebody had a regular byline, if somebody had a big position, that they must know what they're talking about. And even if I didn't see it, even if I was like, I don't know what I'm missing. Like, I feel like everyone thinks this person, so they, they must, they, mm-hmm. they must be really smart or mm-hmm. great. They must, cause they've like, I don't really get it, but there must be. And I think what I've realized is that, um, you know, talent doesn't it's not always talent that rises you know and oh that my there's God, that's gorgeous <laughs> it's not always talent that rises yeah and there's a lot of talent on the table that we are leaving on the table and so i think when i was at and so i think that that helped me get over my fear which is and again when i when i would sit in these editorial meetings and see people pitching with a ton of confidence an idea that was like half baked and they would be like i feel and I don't, you know, it's probably not going to come as any surprise that the the demographic tended to be white men who would who would maybe not. I mean, which isn't not all of them. I mean, we would get like excellent, really well researched. I'm not not all white men. Yeah, hashtag not, <laughs> not all, all white, white men. Not all white men. But I would say that there was a real um, gender and racial divide between the people that would do something dashed off with a lot of confidence, and the people that would come forward with an idea that was so thoughtful, like they. Everything was there and it was so thought through because I think that they felt they had to work that much harder. I think Mm -hmm. that they felt that they, you know, and the result was that they presented these pitches that were like smart and well-researched and clear and I could understand what the story. And so I could actually assess them and say, I think this will work or it won't work. But I, you know, but I know what they're talking about. I know what they bring to this. Um, and, And so I think sort of seeing how many people had a kind of confidence that really wasn't necessarily based on effort or talent, but just kind of confidence and that you could just, you could kind of fake it. Like if they could be, like I would look and say, well, if they could be confident, like I'm, I'm, I'm actually just as smart as they are. Yeah. Um, So I think that was something that I learned that I think I thought for the longest time, and it's going to sound like really, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but there was like one true taste. There was like one true um, measure of talent and ability. And I think what's actually been quite beautiful in this, this moment where media is kind of like, like disrupted and fragmented is you realize that like, there isn't like there, there are, you know, that there are so many the nicheification actually has a tremendous benefit to it is that it's allowing a lots of lots of different talents and sensibilities to flourish and there's not one sole gatekeeper that you can say I don't have to go to, 
like no disrespect to the CBC, but I don't have to go to the CBC or the Globe and Mail. I can start, I can, I can listen to that podcast if I want to find out what's going on mm-hmm. in the world and I want to hear um, really smart stories about communities. I can, um, I can go to these new media outlets like, like Vice or BuzzFeed or, you know, whatever. So I think that that was been a big learning for me is that there's not one arbiter of smartness or talent that, that, you know, that there, there's so much, um, there are so many different ways to um, find a place for your work and for your writing and to find work that's smart and intelligent that's not going through the mainstream official kind of channel. And with that, I think we're going <laughs> to end done. it there. That was really good. <laughs> Thanks so much. What a, what a pleasure to talk to you. This is like, I do, I want to come back every Saturday morning. <laughs> Again, I'll just show up with coffee, hang out. You'd be sick of me. I might let you do that. I might let you do that. <laughs> Rachel, I just find you so smart. And You're very uh, I, kind. I, no, I love how um, your thoughts come out of you, I find so eloquently and I I feel inspired. I know that sounds oh that sounds so cheesy. But <laughs> but I I do um I really, really appreciate the work that you have done, but not only that, just your opinions. Oh, so thank you. That's yeah, really thank kind. you for being here. And it's, it goes right back to you. Like oh. I just like complete like this is a mutual admiration society oh, wow. here. Like, I just, and I think this podcast is so good. I mean I like you on the radio so much and I'm very excited about this. Like I'm so excited about this work. You know? Thank so you. It was so nice Aww. to be part of this. So that was my media girlfriend, Rachel Giza. She's the writer and editor-at-large at at Chatelaine Magazine. She is just finishing writing a book about boyhood and masculinity. And I find that I just want to know more about Rachel the more I talk to her. I read somewhere that one of the secrets to life is having friends who are both younger and older than you. And even though I don't think Rachel is that much older than me, she's definitely been in media much longer than I have. And I really feel like I have a lot to learn from her perspective, especially just getting to know what might be going on in the minds of some of our more seasoned colleagues. She's sort of able to explain why people are thinking what they're thinking and where they're coming from. So thank you, Rachel. And thank you to all the media girlfriends who have been on the show. I really appreciate it. To you media girlfriends who listen and give me feedback and just tell me how uh, these conversations are um, resonating with you. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm going to get you on my show. Um, Okay, that's it. The final episode of this first season of Media Girlfriends. Media Girlfriends is produced by me, Nanaba Duncan. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play. And, of course, on Twitter, at MediaGFS. And the hashtag is Media Girlfriends. And I'll see you next season, whenever that is. (laughs) 